0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of You Belong in AI. Today, I'll be hosting this episode along with Kai Toda and Isha McNeilis. We'll be interviewing Santiago Gonzalez, a PhD candidate at UT Austin, researching the usage of evolution to optimize loss functions. Santiago is known for really studying um, and researching machine learning at the intersection of evolution and loss function optimization. Previously, he has worked on wireless sensor networks also notably he is a very young phd candidate at just 22 years of age outside of his research santiago really loves fitness in general whether that be biking hiking going to the gym or rock climbing in addition he really enjoys music movies and playing games hi santiago thank you for being here today
1: hi arjun thank you for having me on
0: i just wanted to start off by asking you a little bit about your background so what inspired you to pursue ai research and did you? major in like CS statistics or some other kind of related field in your undergrad?
1: Yeah, so I did my undergrad and my master's degree prior to starting with PhD, both in computer science. And interestingly, uh, my research was originally more in wireless sensor networks and systems type work. It was only after I took uh, several elective classes in robotics that it really sort of ignited the spark in me that got really interested in AI and machine learning and the interesting thing is this was all before the whole deep learning area really took off. So it was all these more classical approaches and really fundamental problems in robotics that we were learning about.
0: That's really great to hear. So you were a little bit more involved, when we are talking about robotics, would that be more of the engineering of robotics? Um, were you also looking at kind of the control theory that goes, uh, goes on behind
1: robotics? So a lot of the work that uh, I was involved in in these courses was more on the 3D perception side of things. So given an environment where you might have several objects, how can the robot, given the suite of sensors that it has, how can it figure out where the objects are, what the objects are specifically, and how it can potentially um, move its grasper to grab that object and move it to a different location, for example.
0: Great, awesome. And so you kind of built upon this um, love that you had for robotics to kind of pivot towards a more artificial intelligence focus.
1: Yeah, definitely. The thing with robotics is that robots themselves are actually really very finicky. Um, Everything can go wrong and everything needs to just interface together just right for everything to work. So I really enjoyed working on just the AI side of things and letting the hardware sort of to other people.
0: Yeah, Um, I also noticed uh, that, so you said that you had an interest in neuroscience as well, and that kind of shaped your passion for AI. Uh, Could you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so I've always been really interested in neuroscience. Uh, I mean, the brain is really the most complex device that we really have ever discovered or found or built. So I think it's a really great platform to study how cognition works and how these different principles of learning and you know information processing can be applied to build these you know obviously much simpler systems um, in machine learning but there's a lot of these core principles that we can apply and i think that there's really exciting work at the intersection of biology and engineering you know we don't have to reinvent the wheel we can kind of take inspiration from what's already been built
0: yeah 100 i'm really glad you uh, brought that up i think a lot of people when they see you know, neural networks or any of these other kind of concepts that are very prevalent in modern artificial intelligence, they immediately think of relationships between um, our devices and the human brain. And obviously, while not all those relationships are as clear-cut as people assume, like obviously we don't, we're not really engineering brains, um, there's just a lot of inspiration taken uh, from, you know, syn- uh, synaptic, synaptic pruning, kind of like um, electrical signals that are being passed between neurons. Um, so I'm I'm really happy here that you were inspired by that and hopefully you kind of integrate uh, that passion um, that, like taking inspiration from neuroscience into the research you do every day.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah, I feel the interdisciplinary um, sharing a bit of information between fields is really kind of what fuels all these big major discoveries.
0: Um, so I'm gonna pivot a little bit right now into more about your current experience as a PhD candidate at UT Austin. Um, So you uh, identify as a queer person of color within CS. And so I just wanted to ask as a queer person of color, particularly within academia in CS, uh, what is great about, what is great about having that identity? Has it shaped your work? Um, Does it influence the kind of organizations that you've joined within UT Austin?
1: So it's been uh, maybe not as influential in certain ways, but more influential in others. So the, PhD program, at least in computer science, it's already an extremely uh, diverse program. There's a lot of international students from all over the world. So you really already have this really nice melting pot of different ideas, different cultures, different ways of thinking. Um, So your own personal identity being a little bit different isn't really uh, a huge factor because everyone is already a little bit different in their own way and has their own things to bring to the table though it's certainly uh you know things have obviously moved forward very well in terms of acceptance over the past few years but there's still you know a few things here and there where uh you know you do just kind of have to think through things a little bit more and be a little more reserved and really think about is this an appropriate place to sort of have this aspect of myself really come out or is it something i need to sort of keep a little bit more hidden
0: here. Right, and that kind of ties into the next question that I was going to ask about, have there been any instances where you haven't found it particularly easy or it's been a little bit confusing about whether to keep your identity a more hidden aspect of yourself or make it more open? Like in particular, like what areas within um, just UT Austin in general have you found kind of very comfortable to be open about your, through, your true authentic self?
1: Yeah, so I've been very fortunate in that sense. Uh, UT Austin and just all the whole Austin metropolitan area in general are very open and accepting places. I uh, you know, see people being openly gay and uh, such as that all over. So it, it really is kind of a really open environment. And once I kind of sort of accepted it to myself and came out to myself, it was much easier to come out the community overall and really feel like I belonged there for sure.
0: That's really great to hear. I always love hearing that from many of the people that we interview on this podcast. I think just ultimately that kind of self-acceptance is really what drives your confidence in any field that you choose to pursue. Um, I wanted to ask about, um, so you know, I know you said that it's a very diverse community already, um, but I know in some aspects, for example, like you said, the queer community in CS, I'm sure, which is like, it's, it's relatively big, maybe not the most open, but you said that it's um, an awesome uh, community because it's very supportive. I was wondering if there are any ways in which uh, UT Austin or any other, like I guess the more general um, academic community within CS, lacks representation.
1: Yeah, so I guess uh, for starters, you know, one way that I think it, it the representation has been approached really well are these different sorts of uh, I think they call them affinity groups and conferences. So one of them is like Queer in AI, and they organize specific workshops and events at the conferences. So I think that's a really great opportunity to really interface with other people in the community. And it's just really a a group of amazing and wonderful people. Um, And it's really great getting to meet with them. However, of course, there's still a long ways to go in certain respects. Uh, I think, you know, at least like within the LGBT community, uh, trans people are certainly a little bit farther back on the road to really being fully accepted by the world. And I think with, uh, AI being such an international community, there's certainly some countries where things are a little bit less far along, and we kind of really want to focus that and really realize that, yes, things are really great here in the U.S. in a lot of ways, but there's other countries where it's definitely a much more real struggle for some people.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm I'm glad that, and I've heard about all these affinity groups, like I know there's Latinx in AI, there's like black in AI, there's queer in AI, there's like WIML, women in machine learning. Um, And yeah, it's a really important aspect of all of this that they're, they're multinational, they're kind of reaching over to multiple countries. um, And hopefully that hopefully AI becomes a space where even if you can't really be yourself in another country, at least like you have this community that spans multiple uh, nations that will be supportive of your identity and does make you feel included um, in the research space.
1: Oh, absolutely, and I think that just seeing that there are people like you, whether you know you're black or gay or trans or whatever, seeing that there are people like you in this community really makes it a lot easier and more comfortable for everyone.
0: Um, I so there an an issue that you did bring up um, in your response to our questions was that the AI community definitely lacks representation from women. So I was wondering if you had any idea within these conferences or beyond like conferences, maybe just like day-to-day work within research labs at universities, how we could better, uh, how we can improve the representation of women in AI research.
1: Yeah, I think it's really astonishing just how few women you have in AI compared to, I mean, even compared to other parts of computer science and certainly, you know, the sciences overall where you have other fields such as, uh, you know, chemistry where you have a much higher percentage of women. And uh, I think, I honestly don't have the perfect answer and I really don't know what the solution is. It's a very difficult problem. But I think that really making it so that women feel that this is something that they can do and this is a field that is open and welcoming to them. It's not just a bunch of, you know, nerdy guys who live in their parents' basement who, you know, just read books and books and books uh, all the time. You know, it's a much bigger community than that. And I think that that can scare away a lot of people, both men and women, you know, these sorts of uh, stereotypes and preconceptions of what the field is like.
0: Yeah. And um, just kind of go building off of that, uh, where do you think these stereotypes really get ingrained in the minds of people who are maybe choosing a major, um, going into the undergrad and college, or maybe even pursuing, uh, deciding whether to pursue a PhD? Do you think that these stereotypes are so prevalent and Uh, like young, even like young kids are aware of uh, CS being maybe like more of a nerdy guy kind of field. Do you think that it's, in that case, it's important to reach out to younger students and dismantle these stereotypes?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think that the problem really starts before college. Uh, You know, we always, we tend to ingrain these kinds of beliefs of like what different kinds of people can do. Pretty early on in school, And then, you know, just popular culture like movies really doesn't help where you have, you know, just your standard hacker software person in movies is always this like really lanky, you know, nerdy guy. And, you know, it's like, no, you you can be anyone. You can be a woman or whatever. The way you look, who you are doesn't really impact that. If you're passionate about the field and it's something that interests you, you should absolutely be able to feel free to go into it.
0: Yeah, I, I was actually, um, I think we talked about this with an earlier podcast guest as well as some of the history that is uh, shaped computing. I know when computer science started um, as like an actual major, I think like 1984, I need to get fact checked on that, was when ACM released its first guidelines for what the compu- like a good computer science major curriculum would look like. Um, there were so many uh, actually women in the field and it was like not just white women either. It was very intersectional. I remember hearing a talk from um, a woman of, uh, so like a Native American woman who actually grew up on a reservation who was, who majored in electrical engineering with an emphasis in computer science back in the 1980s. However, things have changed so much just because of like even toys. Toys has plays a major factor in this. There's like there's this is gendering of toys such that, uh, you know, women play, uh, or like I guess like young girls play with, you know Barbies and other kind of they have more all these Barbies tend to also have jobs that are related to cosmetics or art or like anything more humanities oriented whereas the um, you know there's always like for, for the toys that young boys play with they generally are more technology oriented um, and in addition to that like there were a series of movies in the 80s and 90s that really brought up this hacker culture uh, like you know I think There was one featuring uh, Matthew Broderick, I think like in 1983, I can't remember the exact name of the film right now, but uh, that was really one of the first things that reinforced that like the, you know, teenagers in high school, like male teenagers in high school are the ones who like go into the command line and then like type in commands that get you to access different programs. Um, And even in the 90s at UCLA, there were statistics that, Women were highly, like, decently represented, highly as compared to now, like fifty percent of the CS population. Whereas now it's not even, not even close to twenty, which is like you know very concerning. People think that it's always been this low, but in fact, it's just been declining, especially throughout the two thousands. So, in terms of reaching out to youth, you said that that's very important to do. Uh, Do you recommend for the organizations that are going out and doing this? um that we kind of start how, like do you recommend integrating something into the curriculum do, should we have more explicit conversations about diversity and inclusion uh with younger students like even when they're in elementary school i know like a lot of universities right now are kind of shouldering the burden of going out and reaching out to these elementary or like middle or high school students um but i just wanted to know what your thoughts are on having this be more integrated like explicitly both like tech and the diversity aspect into students' curriculums?
1: Yeah, I think a big part is that just school curriculums, uh, at least here in the US, are just so outdated that a lot of these different kinds of engineering disciplines aren't even covered in any way. Uh, there's a lot of you know, focus on other things. So students really only get exposure to these different fields if they're you know, if they manually go out, look into the material themselves, or if they're guided by this, uh, because, you know, they're pure, I think it really kind of a mainstay for different curricula. And, you know, with school you have everyone going to school. Uh, you really have uh, this challenge, I think, with diversity, because you already have everyone in schools. You have gay people, black people, Ah, uh, white people, everyone in there. So, it, if you get everyone in there early on in these fields, I think that it, it all sort of trickles up the ladder.
0: Yeah, I you know I completely agree. I think like obviously Kai and Nisha agree as well. Um, a large part of this is like we just need to represent. Like I think that like making that representation more explicit is a key factor. You know, with people, um, you, you mentioned earlier that individuals are like are drawn towards fields where they see representation of their own identities. Um, and, um, and like I think like this representation is not very equal all the time, but it does exist. And just to kind of like increase the, the level of equality, it's obviously like a great solution. If we can take, um, you know, individuals such as yourself or individuals who uh, like, also identify with other kind of underrepresented identities within the field and be like, wow, this person is thriving. Like, look at them. And, you know, it doesn't, it's not because um, it's not because like CS is very, it's only meant for individuals who are like live in their parents' basement and are white and male. Like it's because anyone can do it, including you. Um, so yeah, I think that's, I think it's awesome. I think this is like, a great conversation um, and, and I'd love to continue it. Uh, but just for the sake of making sure our episode fits into a certain amount of time, I'm going to transition a little bit into uh, your experience within academia more professionally. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit uh, about how your your experience doing research um, and how you enjoy kind of doing research every single day, what the culture is like, etc.
1: Yeah, definitely. So uh, when I first started the PhD program, I knew a little bit what to expect, but it really was sort of an explore-as-you-go sort of experience for me. It ended up being much better than I expected in a lot of ways. I think that being able to get really deep into a project and approach it with extreme scientific rigor to really make new insights and push the field forward. I think that that's one of my absolute favorite parts of having done this, of having been part of the PhD program.
0: Right. Yeah. So the, the question that I had was around kind of like the culture, and then I was going to tie it back into um, just like I, you, you brought up how you hadn't really come out to yourself or others kind of coming into your PhD. And so what it was like doing that as a PhD student. Um, and how that was made easier by the fact that you have a good culture at your lab.
1: Yeah, so uh, fortunately, the computer science program at UT Austin has a really fantastic culture. It's not very high stress. It's relatively laid back. Uh, You might even say it's a little bit too laid back in some aspects. There's some students that just take horrendously long to finish the program, but it's really nice. Uh, People, I get the impression that a lot of the students really enjoy life there and they enjoy what they're doing. It's not like they feel that they're under this horrible pressure. that's completely insurmountable. So I think it's a really healthy environment to be in. And in my group specifically, I think that's also the case. Uh, You know, you always hear this sort of joke that uh, finding a a PhD advisor is like finding someone to marry. It's, uh, you know, this really intense sort of relationship that you want to cultivate and it needs to be right. And so I was very fortunate in being able to find my uh, current advisor, Dr. Mikulainen, uh, there. He's just been a really fantastic mentor. And the, the other students that I work with, with under him, they're all fantastic people. And it's an awesome collective atmosphere. And I think that that's where the most projects and ideas come out of.
0: I just kind of wanted to touch upon, again, just so th- the reason that I, I'm i not kind of like harping on or like kind of mystifying the whole aspect of being like queer in ac- in academia I'm just kind of trying to like, the reason I keep on pushing that as the last time I want to do it is just because I think it makes it very clear to students who are really scared to come out, you know, to the people around them that it is possible and that there will not be repercussions of it or that people will actually accept you and it's actually beneficial for you to do so. So I was just wondering if you could talk about that component?
1: Yeah, definitely. So uh, I came out relatively late. Uh, I had already started the PhD program when I came out, both to myself and to others. So it was definitely a little bit stressful at first. But once it's all over with, uh, I really felt this huge burden lifted. And it's kind of great being able to just work and do research, being your true self and not feeling like there's anything you have to hide about your identity and who you are.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, that's also really uh, great to hear. I think those are the kind of messages that really need to be broadcasted that, yeah, it's going to be, it's always going to be stressful because of how society is. Um, But ultimately, like, it's just so great for you as a person and also great for the people around you um, that you just get to work and collaborate and, you know, have fun in a more open environment in general. So with that very positive message and note right there, I want to transition um, host control over to uh, I think it's Nisha is next for questions three and four Um, sorry two and three and so she will go over those right now.
2: Yeah so everything we've heard about your research right now seems really cool so we'd love to hear a little bit more about what you're researching what your lab is like and overall what the academic culture of UT Austin is like.
1: Sure. So my research is essentially at the intersection of evolutionary computation and machine learning. So what my research focuses on specifically nowadays is on using evolution to come up with new options from that are able to learn faster, higher levels of performance, and even better resistance against adversarial attacks. And uh, this is an entirely new sort of idea. When we first got started with it, uh, I was really honestly unsure whether it was just an absolutely horrible idea and that's why no one had tried it before because you always see pretty much everyone using the cross-entropy loss or something pretty standard like that when training.
2: Is that something, like research in general, do you think that you would want to pursue that even after getting your PhD or would you want to shift more into industry?
1: Yeah, so I definitely want to work in industry once I graduate. Uh, I've definitely had my my fair share of being in academia. (laughs) But uh, I do want to ideally stay within this kind of nice area of evolutionary computation and machine learning. I think that there's a lot of really interesting problems that can be solved using these approaches. And it's really something that hasn't had a whole lot of traction in the field. Um, Apparently, there's been a lot of you know, inter-university and inter-professor squabbling, which has resulted in this not being the case. Um, But yeah, I think evolution has a lot of power to solve lots of really interesting problems in creative ways. And I think that's what really makes it special. Instead of having a human hand design and fine-tune and engineer a solution to a specific problem, you can really set up evolution to do that for you. And it can oftentimes find solutions to problems in ways that really aren't immediately obvious to people.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. And kind of along those lines, what is that really draws you to AI in general?
1: I think that AI has the power to really be a huge, um, to have huge positive impacts on the world. I, I imagine that a world where you have AI working alongside humans to help humans make more informed decisions and make menial tasks, handing handing those over to an AI to do rather than having a human do so the human can focus on the more interesting problems. I think that's a really great future to follow. And uh, I think that it, there... We're finally at a point where we are starting to have enough of the compute power to really apply this to real-world problems, and we're starting to have enough data, thanks to, you know, the internet and mobile devices, et cetera, that it's really becoming possible to approach these big questions and big problems now in ways that we haven't really been before. I mean, a lot of the ideas in AI are from 30 years ago, and just a up to like the past 10 years we're finally able to really apply them.
2: Absolutely. I think the magnitude of impact that AI can have is definitely one of the things that I really like about it but it also does make it a very very intimidating field and it can definitely be hard to get into it and start learning more about it and so I'm curious if you've had any experiences where you felt intimidated by the field as a whole and if you have had those experiences, how do you kind of react to the challenges that you face?
1: Oh, absolutely. It was incredibly intimidating when I first started, especially with, I feel I feel like AI moves at such a rapid pace nowadays. You always have com- new ideas, new papers, everything coming out practically every week. Uh, and it's just, it can be impossible to keep up with, and it is impossible to really keep up with everything. So, I sort of just started going along in a in one direction and start, sort of starting to focus on the area that really called to me. And there you you, it's almost like surfing in a way, you kind of have to get, catch up with the wave. And then once you're like right at the top of the wave, you just kind of stay there. If you, you know, do the enough work to read, you know, reading papers and staying afloat essentially. Does that sort of answer your question?
2: Yeah, I think it does. It's just basically you have to start taking steps to try to understand. There's no way to avoid getting into the mess and trying to like figure stuff out.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it really ends up being such that you start to learn about one concept. And then that links you to a bunch of other concepts. And it's all this kind of intertangled web. And you really have to understand, at least for me, it was being able to understand enough about certain areas to be able to move on uh, to sort of the next interesting thing and not having to, you know, being able to to accept that you don't have to understand everything 100%. You can understand these abstractions and that allows you to sort of move on and just use those abstractions.
2: Yeah, definitely. So this is kind of shifting gears a little bit and you don't have to answer it if you're not comfortable. It's just something that I am curious about. Given that you're so young as a PhD candidate, do you think that there are any misconceptions that you've faced or challenges you faced because of your age and how did you go about solving them?
1: So that's a it's an interesting question and it often surprises people when I, I tell them this, but it really hasn't impacted me in a, in many ways. Uh, I guess I can, I kind of am able to pass for, you know, older age than I actually am. <laughs> but uh, it, it's certainly interesting in terms of socializing, um, you know, apart from the age thing, PhD students are often, I guess in computer science, you already have this sort of stereotype that people are a little bit quirky, a little bit odd socially in certain ways. And that's certainly a little bit true. But when you get to the PhD program, you definitely have a lot more, um, you know, eccentric people and characters. And so socializing is definitely a bit more of a challenge because there's, first of all, not that many students doing the PhD program. And then the ones that have sort of mutual interests, it, it ends up being a smaller pool. So with me, at least in UT, I ended up, being involved in different student organizations. And a lot of my friends that I would meet up with um, regularly were other students in my research group or undergrads.
2: Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I'm sure that's a problem that a lot of people who do have something that makes them different and makes their opinion useful, but also like separates them from other people who they're working with. I'm sure that's a very common problem. Um, the things that like make you diverse in AI also make it harder for you to socialize and to feel like you fit in. And so I think it's really awesome that you still have made the effort to really make a name for yourself in AI and do so much research. And yeah, I think that's really great. So I'm gonna pass it off to Kai now to ask you a little more about representation in AI.
3: So we would love for you to speak once again about the importance of representation in AI. AI. More specifically, what are your thoughts on the significance and the current state of fairness and biased research in AI?
1: Yeah, so I think that AI is inherently a dual use technology, either intentionally or unintentionally. It has the potential to both help and hurt very large groups of people. I think that you really have to keep uh, keep an eye on this as a researcher, and always have it in your mind, how will this impact different groups of people, especially if you're working with, um, you know, people's data, uh, or images, things like that, that are actually involved in people's lives. You don't want to have an AI making decisions incorrectly with only a subset of people. Um, you know, it really calls to mind this one parole, like automated parole system that I read about Uh, last year, they had tried out and they found out that, you know, the system itself was already taking uh, this data for making parole decisions from previous cases. And there was already a sort of racial bias ingrained in this data that was being used. And so this carried over to this automated system that helped make parole decisions. So of course, there were uh, disproportionately bad outcomes. For, uh, minorities and people of color which are already sort of facing these issues today. So we really have to make sure that the systems that we build as researchers are fair, are safe, and have you know very little potential to be misused. And at least in the area that I'm in, they're very broad techniques. So you don't deal with this as directly as someone working in say, you know, facial recognition, which is definitely a much more contentious area.
3: Yeah, definitely. Like we, um, I think lately there's been a rise in more focusing on the more social side of AI, like concerning like the bias and, um, just like noticing the fact that, um, that there's differences between races and like bringing awareness to that, I think is a very good thing. And that there's still a lot that we need to work on, but, Going off of that, what would you think are um, like active steps that we can take to focus on those issues more and bring them into light?
1: I think that really having, you know, PhD students, incoming PhD students and people working in this field in general, having them be more aware about this and the ethical ramifications of their work, uh, you know, conducting ethical research, all those things bundled together. I think that just having that awareness is a lot more important. I think that there's this tendency for a lot of students to believe that this is science. And just because it's science, that gives you carte blanche to do whatever you want. And you're just doing science, so you don't really have to worry about these problems. You're not the one actually implementing them in the world later on. But that's not necessarily always true. And it, it can have really bad impacts for certain groups of people or even all people, if you don't keep these things in mind while you're developing your systems.
3: Yeah, for sure. Like there's definitely, there's this um, conception that AI is just very tech heavy and this misconception that there can only be bad, like AI is going to take over the world. It's important that we bring to light that there are good sides, that we just have to make sure that we balance everything and consider all the social effects. Absolutely. So moving on from that... What would your message to be to youth from underrepresented groups interested in AI or ge- generally the CS field?
1: So I would say to them, there are people like you and you can absolutely follow these fields that you're passionate in and be true to yourself. There isn't anything about yourself that makes you incapable of doing this work just because of who you are. If you're interested and you have the motivation and the skills to do it, go ahead and do it and just be yourself and you're going to have a very rewarding and happy life and career.
3: Exactly, that's great to hear. And like we discussed, it's obviously um, always intimidating to jump into something that's completely new and has a lot to it. So what advice would you offer to people who wanna get involved in CS or AI, but just aren't sure how to?
1: Yeah, so certainly imposter syndrome when you're starting a PhD, I mean, for me, it was a very real thing. And it. pretty much everyone that I've talked with that's done a PhD, they say, oh, yeah, totally. So, you know, you might feel like you're completely out of your league or that you're stupid when you're wanting to get into these areas. And the truth is you're not. Everyone starts out like this. Everyone's going through the exact same thing. And I think that just kind of keeping that in mind whenever you're feeling down, or dejected, I think it's really important to note, this is totally normal, it's okay. And you you just have to keep at it and eventually you'll look back and you'll be like, oh wow, I've made so much progress and I'm really happy with the work I'm doing.
3: Yeah, exactly, like everyone does have to start somewhere. And do you have any tips or resources that you came across for people to like ease themselves into CS or AI?
1: Yeah, so it's certainly a very different field nowadays from when I started a few years ago. It's just crazy how fast everything's changed. There's a lot of really great resources out there today that weren't really out there as much uh, when I was first starting out. But if you're already in CS and you're wanting to pursue AI, I mean, definitely take a course in, in AI or machine learning that appeals to you. A really good tip is being able to read papers, uh, I think is an extremely important skill to have uh, to really learn about these new concepts. Um, and it, it might seem trivial, like, oh, you to read the paper, you just read the paper, but really knowing how to get the best uh, bang for your buck in terms of the time you invest in reading the paper, I think is a really good skill to have. And it's really something that comes with practice. So, you know, there's a paper that seems interesting, just read it. You won't understand a lot of the things in the paper at first you might only get a few little nuggets of insight but over time you'll be able to get more and more information out of what you're reading up to the point where it's really just a super good information dense resource and it allows you to branch off and see sort of other papers that are referenced from that etc
3: definitely reading and understanding papers are two very different things I remember when I got started, um, there was so much notation and so much terminology that I had no idea what was going on, but it's gotten much better.
1: And everyone uses different notation. It's, it's a mess.
3: (laughs) So along that, so for the longest time, there's been this stigma attached to CS that only geniuses can pick it up. Or like you were saying, the people living in their mom's basement and like the nerdy stereotype, um, those are the people that do well in CS. So what words of encouragement would you offer to people who want to see, who want to learn about CS and pursue it, but they're unsure of their, of themselves?
1: So I think that the great part is that CS is such a wide ranging field and you can apply it to pretty much anything. So you're bound to have some skill, um, that will be really great in CS and applicable and pretty much, As long as you're able to think methodologically and uh, in a sort of a logical way, you can pick up these concepts. No one goes into CS knowing everything. You know, that's what you're there for. You're there to learn. So if you don't know anything about the field when you get started, I mean, that's totally okay. If you are passionate about it and you're interested in it, totally go pursue it. And you'll find an, an area within CS that really speaks to you.
0: Thank you again for listening to You Belong in AI. This podcast is made possible at UCLA ACM AI Outreach. Again, my name is Arjun Subramonian, and today I host this episode along with Kai Toda and Nisha McNeilis. Today we interviewed Santiago Gonzalez, a PhD candidate researching the intersection of evolutionary algorithms and loss functions in machine learning. The script for the questions that you heard today were created by the amazing ACM AI Outreach team. Uh, Furthermore, the podcast is edited by Jason Jewick. The music you're hearing at the end of this podcast is composed by Kevin McLeod and is called Cheery Monday.
1: I'm Santiago Gonzalez. Thank you for listening to this episode of You Belong in AI. Tune in next time and remember, You you Belong
2: in AI!